me tell you, if you don't think we are living in special, unique times, there is a multi-billion dollar industry that produces ugly shirts and sweaters. Guys, I don't know what else. We're living in special times, aren't we? Uh, it has been a treat. I love this day. I told our team earlier as we were praying through the morning, this is one of my favorite days of the year. It's one of my favorite seasons of the year at Wellhouse, just because of sweaters and because this is a season where we uh, just choose uh, to be over the top. I mean, we try to do this all the time. We say this a lot, that we want to be wildly generous, but this is one of those seasons where we are just over the top generous. I'm going to tell you about that uh, as the morning goes, uh, some ways that you can be involved today. But if you're new here, I just want to welcome you and just take some pressure off of maybe coming to church for the first time or in a long time. Uh, Maybe you're back for a while. I just want to say that you are in welcomed. You are in good company this morning. Uh, Chris said it earlier that we're just a community of imperfect people. You haven't met anybody this morning that has it all together. Uh, Again, if there's ever an indication of that, look at the attire we have on today, and that should tell you all you need to know about the personality of this place. But I just want to welcome you into this space. I want to welcome you into this place. And I pray that God does something this morning. Uh, for, for you, it may just be moving uh, into a place of curiosity or question or maybe just saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm co- more comfortable than I thought. And for some of you, it may be a giant step saying, you know what, I got I to gotta be more of this or I want to do more of that or I'm going to work on this so that I can be the best I can be, uh, whether that's a husband or wife or boss or coworker or neighbor neighbor, family, friend. I want, I want God to do something today in my life uh, to help me take a stride toward that. Uh, and again, that's our goal. We just want to move people into a life more fully devoted, and that's never a finished product. So you haven't met anybody this morning that is fully devoted to Jesus. You're meeting people who are striving and journeying toward that. So I just want to welcome you. My name is Jason, the lead pastor. If you haven't been with us, we are in a series called Lit, and that is Christmas at Wellhouse. We wanted to say, hey, this Christmas, we want to get lit. And I'll tell you more about that as we go. We kind of introed this last week, and you can go back and listen to some of that. But all of this is based on Christmas being uh, this season of light. There's lights everywhere. We talked about this last week. Some of you probably have already been over to Lebanon to the dancing lights, or you have neighbors that have lights. But it's this season of light, and light has this way of making things feel warm and cozy and comfortable and peaceful in the midst of darkness. It gets dark at like 2 o'clock now, and so, you know, you're driving home in in, in the dark, and so light just has a way of warming things up. And so Christmas naturally becomes this season of light, but we didn't come up with this. We didn't introduce Christmas being a season of light. This was prophesied way back at the beginning. So Isaiah, who's a prophet of Jesus, or a prophet of God, says, hey, I want to tell you about a light that is coming. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, here's what he says. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Let's read that again. The people who walk in darkness will what? See it, say it together. Will see a great light for those who live in a land of deep darkness. What? A light will shine. And so Isaiah comes in in the midst of some really dark moments in Israel's history and says, hey, help is on the way. Help is coming. And so later, in just a few verses later, he gives some specifics about what this is going to look like, that it's not just a light given off by, you know, candle. It's not going to be a light given off by furnace. No, it's going to come in the midst of a person. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, just a few verses down, he says, For a child is born to us, 
A son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called, you've heard some of these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so here this moment, Isaiah says, hold still, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of a season where things seem hopeless, and maybe that's you this morning, or maybe you're in this season where you're going, listen, I could use some hope, I could use some peace, I could use some light. And sure enough, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. He leaves this glory of heaven and he comes sent through this this young teenager named Mary and he comes and he becomes the light. He travels through space and time to bring things like restoration, to bring grace, to bring things like mercy and justice and he brings peace and hope. And so as people begin to watch Jesus navigate his ministry, what they begin to tune into is, this is the great light that Isaiah had spent so much time prophesying about. And so Jesus gives validation to this when he's got some of his followers together. He's got them, and he says, hey, let me tell you, let me validate what it is that you've heard for so long. And in John chapter 8, here's what he says. He says, I am the light He says, I am the light of the world. And they immediately began to navigate back in their understanding and in their education or in their time spent at temple. Ooh, Isaiah mentioned a great light. And he says, I am the light of the world. And he says, and if you follow me, he says, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And so Jesus says, listen, I am the great light that you've been waiting on. I'm the light that's going to break through the darkness. I'm going to to pierce through this, and I'm going to illuminate. I'm going to give hope to the hopeless. He says, and, and here's the great thing about it, as his followers began to lean in and go, this is what we've been waiting on. They lean in, and he says, and guess what? It won't stop with me. It doesn't end with me. He goes on to say, he says, you are the light of the world. He says, collectively, I've come to give my life and illuminate and and pour hope and mercy and love and peace and grace, all these things into your life. But here's what's going to happen. There's going to come a time when I leave, when I'm going to kind of fulfill the end prophecies of dying and being resurrected. He says, and guess what? Then you are going to become the bearers of that great light. He says, when you follow me, here's what happens. You begin, or you should begin to reflect me. You become light. You become that for other people. And so he says, how you live and how you act and how you talk and how you interact with people that you don't even know, but you're interacting. Your your paths have crossed for a reason. That that server at your table this afternoon or that, that long checkout line where undoubtedly someone at the front of that line, they don't know that it's already piled up 25 deep and they're going to stop and write a check. How you act in that moment will be a reflection of something. And Jesus says, listen, you're going to become the light of the world. You're going to become an extension of my light. We become light bearers. We we become these reflectors, and we begin to, in our lives, how we act, how we talk, how we think, how we interact, do we reflect that grace and that mercy and that justice and that peace and that love, and that hope. 
And here's the thing, our world needs that. Our world is starving, for that. our world is depending on and desperately needs. And so in this, in this world that we live in, we talked about this last week, and I want to drag us back through this, but we live in, in some dark times. I'm not sure it's any darker than it's been at any other time, but as we're living in it, we're living through it, we begin to see that the world is messy. And the world is cynical. And there's just something about the world that we live in that gets gloomy. And, and there's lots of hard things that's going to require or someone to come in and give hope to it, shed meaning to it, give life back to it, and to restore some of those things. And this happens when we reflect the great light that Isaiah was talking about. So here's what becomes our calling. This becomes as a church, and you got to realize that when I say the church, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about we. We make up the church. And so here's the mission that Jesus says, here's what I want you to go on point, that the darker the world gets, the brighter the church must shine. And so that should hit each of us at home very individually because you are part of the church. So the darker the world gets around you, the brighter you're called to shine. And so you've got to kind of tune in to that, that reflector. So you've got to take, continue to take more and more of Jesus in so that you can begin to what? Let that live out. And so this Christmas we said, hey, we're going to get lit as a church, as individuals. We're going to get lit. And so we called this whole season Imagine. And I don't want to give you, you can go back and listen, but let me just give you a couple of highlights of that. Imagine is this time not for charity but for Jesus where we begin to say, hey, we want to be light bearers. We want to be reflectors. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to be generous. I've said before, and I've said it over and over and over again for, for the last five years, is that generosity is contagious. And generosity has this power that comes with it. Generosity is, is one of those, 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 if you will, catalysts where people begin to lean in and go, okay, there's something different here about these people, especially when it's generosity with no strings attached, when there's no other expectation of something on the other end. And so we enter these seasons throughout the course of the year where we just become over-the-top generous, and imagine is one of those. And so last week, and you can continue to do this week, you can give to this thing called imagine, and we're already beginning to see this go out just this last week. We were able to facilitate out some of the funding that you gave. And we told you from the beginning that 100% of it's going to go right back out. We're not keeping any of this uh, except for maybe to do some things in the spring that we know is coming. And so we said, hey, all that you're going to give is going to go out. So this last week, I met with the, uh, the wrestling coach here. You know, and anytime you coach, you don't just coach. You don't coach technique. You coach life. And so this wrestling coach here has some young men that's on his wrestling team that he has become a father figure for or that he has become an, in, an influential figure in their life. And so he is knee-deep, not just in the, on the mat, so to speak, but he is on the mat of life. And so he, he came to me about a month ago, and he said, hey, man, here's some things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, to make it where these students' families, because they don't have it, can alleviate some of the pressure that it is that surrounds this season. So, you know, some of these won't even have Christmas dinner, and some won't have Christmas presents, and some have nobody at home that's, that's checking in, and I'm trying to fulfill that role. And he and I got to talking, and I said, you know what, that's something that we want to do. And so this last week we met, and we helped facilitate some of that. You helped facilitate some of that. Just this last week, we organized where we're going to feed breakfast. You know, some of the hardest working people, especially this time of year, are our teachers. If you teach, thank you. And if you teach in, 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 in the system that is our metro system, thank you. 
And so we said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to help provide breakfast. As nothing else is just a thank you because we know that this semester has been a tough semester for some of you. Today, we're going to continue that. We're going to shop for some families that are just needing a little extra push just to get over the hump of Christmas. And so we're going to meet this afternoon. Melissa O'Brien's heading this up, and we're going to meet with some families, and we're just going to, we're going to allow them to do some shopping. We're going to allow them to gather in some food if that's what they need or if they need winter coats or clothing, whatever it is, and we're just going to shop for those families. Eight or ten of those families are going to, going to meet, and, and they're not just going to meet us. They're going to meet this light. They're going to meet the light of Jesus where somebody in their dark world has come along and says, listen, you matter. You matter. We gathered up enough money, and we're going to contact the organization in the weeks to come. We gathered up enough money last week to build two wells in Africa. We said, you know what? We want to take this thing global. And so we're going to, we're going to begin to think, how can we begin to impact communities in very real, tangible ways? You know, just a few years ago, one billion people on the planet didn't have clean water. That number is already down to 600 million. We believe that, you know what? We can be a part of getting that below that. And so we built two, uh, two wells in Africa, though, and we'll keep you updated on those, on those as they, they actually get dug. And we'll show you a video of how that, that is impacting real life in areas of Chad and Nigeria. Then on the 29th, two Sundays from now, we're going to team up with Green Street and Home Street Home, and you know what? We're going to go, and this is one of my favorite things that we do as well. We did it several years ago, and, and it was just awesome. We're going to do it again. We're going to go, and we're going to take light to the streets through Home Street Home, and we're going to go and we're going to serve a homeless community where there's 35, or as sometimes Stephen says, it can be upwards of 50 in one homeless camp. And we're going to go and we're going to provide some things they need. We're going to provide blankets and we're going to provide chapsticks and socks and clothing and all those kinds of things. But you know what else we're going to do? We're not just going to provide lunch. We're going to eat lunch. You know, you heard Stephen say it last week. It's one thing to give someone something. It's another thing to give someone value. And so, you know what? I'm going to grab a plate and I'm going to chow down on some, some barbecue, not to take away from their plate, but to join them at their table. And so on the 29th, you're invited to that. We're not even, we're going to meet for just a second. We're going to meet at Madison Christian. We're going to team up with them. And so if you come here on the 29th, uh, we're not going to be here. We're going to be at Madison Christian, which puts us a little closer to downtown. And we're going to meet for just a minute, give some instructions, and we're going to carpool down, and we're going to spend lunch with some people on the street who have been forgotten, who have been overlooked, you probably, unintentionally, drove by a few of them this week and may have not even saw them. And so again, we're going to begin to be light. We're going to get lit. And so again, you have an opportunity to be a part of those things, not just with the money that you give, but you will have a part, an opportunity to serve alongside of some of those things. And again, it's not for charity. It's for Jesus. It's this concept of saying, listen, all I am is a conduit to share Jesus. And sometimes that comes in the form of sharing Jesus and your story and your testimony. But sometimes that comes in the form of sharing basic needs, basic uh, wants and, and desires, but also integrity and all those sorts of things. So you're saying, listen, I'm going to become a reflector into these various places and spaces. And then today, I want to peel this back and I want to give you a really uh, fundamental thing that, uh, that we're about here. And I know there are times that we, you know, maybe have appeared as if we veered off this because we haven't talked about it as much. And, but I want to peel back and I want to show you something through the lineage of Jesus that really gives some, some real heart and meaning and motivation as to why we do all of those kinds of things. 
and why we say things like we are imperfect people and why we uh, uh, invite people into these kinds of things. And so, again, I want to reveal some heart behind all of this. I want to reveal the heart of our, our church. I want to reveal the atmosphere that we not only are seeking to maintain, but we are seeking to continue to establish as a church, both individually and collectively. And it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And right out of the gate, you're going to go, what does this have to do with Jesus? And what it, what it has to do with Jesus is all of this is about how a king should act. And we know, you know, we sang about Jesus being the king of kings, but you know that Jesus actually comes from a line of kings. And it was kings that are like no other kings that served in their time. And there was one king in particular, a guy named David. And you probably have heard of David. If you've been around church at all for a minute, or even if you haven't, you probably have heard things like David and Goliath. And so you know kind of that, that uh, if you trace back the genealogy of Jesus, that he came through a line of David. And so there's this moment that there was a king before the king. And I just want to kind of unpeel this today so that you can kind of see this. And so here's the summary of where we are when we enter into 2 Samuel chapter 9. David has uh, come off this string of victories where he has literally mowed down, with the help of God, he has mowed down and has conquered everything around him. It says that he has conquered everything from Edom to Moab to Amma to Amalek. I mean, he has, he has won it all. In fact, he has gone to the point where 2 Samuel chapter 8, before we get to the scene that we're going to spend most of the time in this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 8 says this, that the Lord made David victorious everywhere he went. It was like Midas, everything he touched would turn to gold. And so he was victorious in every battle, in every place, in every spot that he would end up, he would conquer that and he would somehow rule and reign over that. And so with every victory, here's what came. With every victory came... Rewind that. Don't show that yet. See, you've given away the secret. Um, it's really not a secret. But um, with every victory came power. And with every victory came authority. And with every victory came wealth. And so you begin to stack those things up, power and authority and wealth in fact, he is considered at this time the undisputed monarch of the ancient world. His level of power, his level and stretch, the boundaries of authority in his wealth was unmatched. He had storehouses of food and storehouses of gold. He had an army of people that would not only fight for, but would serve and would be at his call regardless of what he needed 24-7. And for most, here's what that would mean. For most who would be given that sort of power and that sort of authority or that sort of wealth, it would mean that I can do what I want when I want. And it would, it would mean that I will get what I want when I want it. And I will do to, what, to whomever I want what I want. It would come with this, this ego that would say, I am untouchable, but there's something different about this king. There's something different about the king called David. And even though he's a warrior king, it was a foreshadowing of a king to come. There was just something different. And I want to show you what that different was today. 
And so if you move to the next verse, it said, so David, look at this, reigned, he ruled. And over whatever he ruled, Israel, here's what he did. He did what was, say it, just and right for what? All his people. And again, this is that moment where it stops us in our tracks and goes, that's different. You mean to tell me he's not going to leverage his power and his authority and his wealth for his own gain, for his own continual gain? Hold up, you mean he's not just going to take care of those who are closest in his circle, the king's court? You mean that he is going to rule justly. He is going to rule with a level of righteousness that will exist and trickle down and be shown for all people? This is what he did. And here's why. It's a heart thing. And that heart was already in place before the power. Because if you rewind back, that's why he was chosen. He wasn't chosen because he was the oldest son. He wasn't chosen because he was the strongest son. He wasn't chosen because he was the best looking son. He was chosen because he was a heart. A heart that God could use. A heart that God could mold. A heart that God could shape. This all came back to a heart thing. In fact, you know that David is later called a man after God's own heart. David did all that he could and, and he was imperfect. If you know the story of David... David veered off, and he got in some, some real hot mess along the way. But David was constantly saying, God, clean my heart, pure my heart, sanctify my heart, cleanse my heart. God, don't, don't separate your presence from me. I need you more now than I have ever. And, and, and so he's, he, it's these moments that he is fine-tuning, and there's no bigger moment in the life of David than the one I'm going to speak about today loud and clear. It's moments like this that we see really from day one of him ruling the world that makes it clear where David's heart was. So here he is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. First day in office as ruler of the world. He's king of the hill. And what's first on his agenda? It's not to set up some sort of security team to preserve that which he has had. He, he's not building border patrol. He's not doing any of these things. First thing on the agenda, and I love this. Verse 3, he says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul? Is there no one still alive from Saul's family? You go, well, okay, who's this Saul guy? Saul was the king before him. And what you need to know about Saul is that uh, this would not have been an abnormal question for him to ask his inner court at this moment. Because if you understand the backstory of what happened here, Saul was the king before, and Saul hated David. Saul couldn't stand David. In fact, he was insanely jealous of David, and over time, as that jealousy grew, so did his hatred for David. So this is the former king who is now chasing. There was a moment where he literally chases down. He begins to, to hunt David as an animal. He does everything he can. He exhausts all his options. And there was even a moment that is described that he finally gets to this place where he's got him in target, and he chunks a spear, and he barely misses. I mean, this is like real-life Game of Thrones stuff. And so, like, this moment where David has been hated for so long by this family, 
You know, it says even that, that he was chased to a point of a cave and he had to dwell, he had to live in that cave for an extended period of time to escape death. And so, again, he created chaos. He created pandemonium around David, a firestorm. And so it's not out of character for David to ask this question, and here's why. Any time that someone would take rule from someone, they would seek to eliminate, to eradicate anyone left from the house of the previous ruler. Because they didn't want someone growing up or getting older or figuring out, you know what? I think I've still got a shred of power, influence, and wealth myself. I probably could put something together to go against the new house. And so David is not asking a question that would have blown anybody's mind. He's saying, is there anyone left from Saul's family? And so they're all like, well, I mean, yeah. And what you got to understand too, this jealousy that had been built up in Saul had come because God had announced, hey, Saul, you're out and David's in. So here this moment, David, first day ruling the world, pulls his closest associates in and he says, is there anyone left from Saul's house? But the story goes on. He says, if so, he says, here's the deal. I want to show God's kindness to them. And this is the moment they drop their pins because they're making the list of going, hey, has anybody checked on, you know, so-and-so's uncle's cousin's nephew? I think he might still be alive. And, you know, we're probably going to have to go north because I heard that, you know, cousin so-and-so. And, and they, they said, hold up, what? He says, yeah. Is there anyone left from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them. And this is the moment where I think people want to win. Hey, hold up, David, we got a good thing going here. I mean, have you considered the security threat to this? What if the tension isn't over? I mean, David, it, it wasn't too long ago that Saul and parts of his family was hunting you like an animal, chunking spears at your head. I mean, what if that be? What if, what if that riff isn't over? This was that moment where I think they said, hey, don't you remember any of this, David? I mean, I know we, we, it's been a minute, but let me remind you. Oh, and by the way, they don't deserve that. They haven't earned that. You know protocol, David. Protocol says you eliminate you eradicate. And now all of a sudden you're coming in and saying, no, 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 I, I want to show kindness to the family. See, but notice something about this. It's not David's nature at work. It's God's nature at work. He says, I want to show what? God's kindness to them. And there's this moment where David, I think, looks his constituents in the eyes and says, hey, guys, this isn't about what we want. It isn't about what we think people deserve. We're not chasing after our own self-interest. We're chasing the heart of God. And he says, so I want to exercise. I want to show God's kindness. He says, listen, I'm not taking cues from my own heart. I'm taking cues from the heart of God. And so is there anyone left that we can show kindness? And there's a right hand that worked under Saul, Ziba. 
Ziba says, yes, one of Jonathan's sons. Now, David would have known who this was if you know the history of this. Jonathan was David's BFF. There was a time when they grew up together, they played together, they were kids together, and they were best friends. He says, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. And, Saul, and David says, where is he? Where is he? He says, if there's someone left, let's locate him. And look what he says. He says, well, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And so David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of of Machir, son of Amiel. And then here we go. It's a big word. Ready? I've been practicing this all week. When Mephibosheth, everybody say that together, Mephibosheth. Maybe we should shorten that to like Mephibi or Meph, Meph, which is probably too close to Meth. But Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, verse 6, son of Saul. Okay, now here we go. He is David, or so he's, he's David's best friend's son, but he's also the grandson of Saul. So when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And here's what David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, at your service. David says, don't be afraid, for I'm surely going to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat at my table. So there's this little meet and greet that's happening now. And you gotta, you got to know that Mephibosheth is, is, is on edge here. And so he says, he bows down and he says, What is it, your servant, that you should notice a dead dog like me? So here's this moment where Mephibosheth is carried in, has been located, brought in to the king, the new ruler of the world. Everybody unknowingly knows what kind of power and influence and wealth that he has. And it's this moment where he is face down, he is bowed down, and he looks up and he says, David, what is it that you would notice a dead dog like me? And that's a kind of a strange term, but not if you kind of clue into this term. What is all of this? It's not just some kind of sense of false humility that he's coming. There is a reason for this term. And if you go back to verse 3, we kind of get a clue. And then we're going to go all the way back to Second Samuel 4, chapter 4. But he says, when he, was, when he was told, he says, yeah, the son of Jonathan is still here. And he has two lame feet. See, he was broken. He was damaged. It was this moment where he has been called this all of his life. He is imperfect. He's lame. Now, we know the circumstances around this. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, we know that as a child, there was this rush. There was a moment everybody was trying to get out of the house and leave, and his nanny is carrying him, drops him. I don't know if he, if he broke both of his feet, and given ancient times, wasn't able to prepare this, but for most of his life, he has been lame. And as a result of that, here's the stigma. He was considered as good as a dead dog. See, the ancient view of this, the world's view of this, there were a couple of different stigmas. They thought, number one, if you were lamed, if you were imperfect, if you were broken in any way, not just physically, but if you were broken, if you had damage, you must be cursed by God. Kings. Oh, they have been blessed by God. 
The rest of us have received blessing, but these people, the ones that would sit out at the gates and beg and the ones that had been exiled into the hillsides, no, don't go near because they've been cursed by God. And so there was this, this cultural value system that had zero value. They had zero time. They were rejected both socially, they were rejected relationally, but here's even the, the, the saddest of all, they were rejected spiritually. You know that there were, there were these man-made laws in Leviticus 21 that stated this, that anyone who was lame, anyone who had imperfections, anyone who was damaged, they even talked about the eyes. Anybody wear glasses? Anybody who had these things who would be considered crazy, who would be considered just a little bit off, it says that they weren't even allowed in the temple. So it wasn't just socially that they were rejected. They couldn't even go to church. And so this is that moment where Mephibosheth comes in. And he goes, why would you take this guy who has been isolated from community and relationships? I've been told spiritually that I'm, I'm too different. I'm too damaged. You can't go. You don't belong. Why would you have invited me here? And this was the life of Mephibosheth. And, and David, again, had every reason and culture. I, I'm sure that he even had people in his court sitting around saying to him, there's no reason to invite this guy in. He's no threat. But there's no reason to entertain. There's no reason, David, for you to give time, attention, and energy to a guy like this. He is as good as a dead dog. Not to mention, David, he is the grandson of your enemy. He is the grandson of the one who chased you down like a dog in order to murder you. What are you doing, David? And this is the guy that you've brought in to show God's kindness to? And so now Mephibosheth is standing there now, laying there. And he's got to be thinking, this is the moment that David, in front of all of his constituents, is going to choose to settle the score. I am the sole remaining survivor of Saul's family. This is the moment where he's going to make a spectacle of me and even the score because that's what every other king that was ever known would have done. And it's the moment where David leans in and says, no, 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 no. I'm different because my heart beats differently. And so here's what David does. He summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he says to him, here's what I want you to do. I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring the crops so that he may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of your master, the grandson of my attempted murderer, will eat at my table. So he says, here's what I want you to do. Give him everything that rightfully belongs to him. And I want you to send a crew up there and you're going to farm the land, sweat of your brow. And you're going to make sure he gets every crop that comes from that. And you're going to make sure that he is taken care of. You're going to hire people so that he won't have any needs. Make sure that everything that is due him gets there. And oh, by the way, he has a seat at my table, the king's 
table. And I want you to notice something. He doesn't say that he will eat from my table. He says, no, he will eat at my table. And this is the moment where we see that the king's heart is different than any other king's heart. We begin to see the heart of David. And again, his advisors had to secretly be going, what is going on? And then all of this crescendos into one of the most beautiful passages that ever existed in the Old Testament. I love this. Mephibosheth ate regularly. Where? At the king's table. And I love this. Like one of the king's own sons. He ate at the table like a son. Like a son. He didn't eat at a kid's table. He didn't eat at a side table. He didn't eat from a table. He ate at the table like a son. And here's what you need to know about that. These tables would have been large tables. And the sons, you know where they would have eaten? Right beside the king. He was treated not just like royalty. He was treated like family. And guys, this is not just a picture of King David's heart. This is a picture of King Jesus' heart that was prophesied about in Isaiah 9, where there would be a great light. It's this, it's this picture that foreshadows a king to come. King Jesus, who would say, I'm going to go down into this mess. Is there any survivors of my enemy? The ones who put me on a cross, the ones who ridiculed. Are there any survivors left? Because I'm going to go down into this mess. I'm going to go down into this situation that calls for justice and death and wrath. No, 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 I'm going to go down. Even though we can justifiably say, that they, they deserve what they get. They deserve everything that's coming to them. He says, no, I'm going to go down and I'm going to create an environment, a table where everyone belongs, even the family of my enemies, the family of my attempted murders. He says, you don't just get a seat, but he says, you're going to be considered a son or a daughter at my table. Guys, David was the most powerful individual on the planet, and this is what he does. Day one, Jesus is the most powerful, most influential human person to ever live on the planet. He could have snapped his fingers and done whatever he wanted, anytime he wanted, and this is what he did. So it only leaves us with one question as we leave today. How about you? What about us? As we established a series ago that, you know what, we have been given great wealth. And with great wealth comes great power. With great power comes great influence. And with great influence comes great responsibility. So how about us? As we begin to comb through this season, and we enter into this great season of generosity for us, that's why I say it's not for charity. Charity's easy. Writing a check and putting it in there or click and push pay or whatever, that, those are easy things. What's more difficult is to open up a seat at our tables. 
I don't know about you, but I want to follow the king's lead. When I give King Jesus control of my heart and he sits on that throne, I want to give him control. And I want to begin to look into my life and say, okay, who is it that I need to invite to the table? Guys, go ahead and roll that next slide. As lit people, I'm going to read this. We want to be radically inclusive. Those who are overlooked, those who are excluded, those who are forgotten, pushed out, not good enough, too broken, too damaged, seemingly not valuable enough because of what they bring to the table doesn't seem to add anything to the table. So you want to know why we do what we do? That's it. I'm just following the steps of the kings before me. I'm just seeking to share light. In case anybody in your world over the next few weeks forgets what Christmas is about, I know that's long and wordy, but that's it. You don't know how to get lit? Don't just write a check. Save a seat at the table. And you do that when we begin to take care of those who are forgotten. We do that when we begin to include those who are overlooked. We do that when we say to those who feel like they are too far gone and too far damaged, it's not about what you bring to the table. It's about who hosts the table. And I told you all along this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. There's so much that happens around tables. And there's one particular table that Jesus establishes after, again, he establishes himself as king. That was much different than they wanted him or needed him at that time to be. But he establishes himself at king, as a king, and he's just days away from crucifixion, but he knows what's coming. Resurrection is coming. And so he sits with some guys. And I, I want to clue you into the table for just a second. So he's in this upper room, and he is... He is celebrating Passover with his closest friends. And he, he sets up a table. And it's the same table that David set up. It's the same table that would have been passed along through generations that would have continued to save a seat for Mephibosheth and his descendants. And around that table, here's what happened. Jesus began to look his closest friends and followers in the eyes. There was a doctor, well-educated. There was a fisherman or two, simple people. There was a loudmouth named Peter who couldn't, get his, couldn't wait to get his spot by the king in this physical kingdom that he thought was coming. But you know who else sat at that table? Judas sat at that table. A guy who just a few days later would trade the life of Jesus for a bag of silver. And the most beautiful part of that is Jesus knew that when he sat at the table. And Jesus doesn't dismiss him from the table. Jesus serves him at the table. Then he gets up and he washes his feet 
at the table. David was just illuminating or lighting the path, reflecting the king to come. So Jesus tells those guys, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to continue to practice this table wherever you are, in your homes, do it regularly. And don't forget the Mephibosheths. Don't forget the Judases. You know, those guys had to think just a few days later, can you believe he let Judas stay at the table? Oh, if I had known what was going to go down, I'd have removed him from the table. Oh, I can hear Peter saying that. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, act like me. Reflect my light. He says, you are the light of the world. So this morning, we're going to gather around the table. And I want you to look around, not just physically in here, but look around in your life and say, who's the Mephibosheth in my life? that I need to ask the question, how can I show God's kindness? And then invite them to my table. Father, this morning, I'm so grateful for this table. This table continues to take on new meaning for me all the time. And this morning, I, as I, I, I peer down, I see seats that are saved for people that are closest to me that I haven't sought necessarily to show your kindness. I definitely haven't sought to invite them to the table. God, would you give me the courage to do that? And I know that the only way I will have the courage to do that is when I begin to take on your heart, your nature. When I become so filled with your light that I begin to allow that light to overflow and to penetrate the darkness that exists in my world as I navigate it. So God, I just pray that this table is a reminder of not only how I belong, but who else belongs. And God, that this table would become a reminder of my responsibility to be a light bearer, to get lit. And so Father, as we take this together, I pray that everybody in this room not only knows and hears with an intellectual understanding that they are welcome, but they feel welcome. God, if we ever make this a place where people don't feel welcome, take it away. Father, we love you. We thank you for King David, and we thank you for King Jesus, who in these little moments show us how to live and show us how to be good at living. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you for being patient with us. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. You are invited to the tables. There's some down front. There's some in the back. And we'll continue with one song and call it a day.